Well, good evening. I'm Josiah Bellflower. I'm the missions pastor here at Desert Springs Church. I would love to talk with you about missions sometime, so please sometime come grab me and talk about how you can get engaged in the things we're doing uh, around the world. So I want to I ask you guys a question before we read our text. We're in Matthew 23, if you want to open to there. But I have a question, and that's, what would you do if you were a judge and a case came upon, up in your docket where you were to judge one of your family members? Now, I know your first reaction, if you don't know the law, would be, well, like me, like, you know, if it's my child, I'm letting them off. <laughs> I love them, right? And I'm not, I don't think in that world. But that would be my first reaction. I just wanna, I wanna for, forgive them whatever they've done and let them off. Uh, but then maybe if you know how the law actually works, you would know that you can't actually judge your child. That's a conflict of interest and someone else is gonna have to sit in the judge's seat. But what if it's God and it's his children, his covenant people, and they're rejecting him? Does he not have the same desire to just let him off like I do? But then complicated by the fact that he is a holy God that would no longer be holy if he just let people off? It's a, it's a conflict. And, and that's why God sent his son to die in our place so that he could forgive his people and our sins. But then what happens if we spurn that son? If we reject the son? If we reject his free gift of grace? What, what happens then? And that's the passage that we're in on. Jesus is now dealing with the fact that he has confronted the Pharisees and the religious teachers of Israel and they have rejected his teachings and he's about to prophesy judgment upon them and here we have this little moment where we see Jesus in between his desire to just forgive and his desire for justice. And he laments. So here we are, Matthew 23, 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So I wanna talk about three things with you tonight. And the first one is how we have a compassionate God represented here. And this is going to spend the majority of uh, the time here tonight to talk about this. Now, this is the last public speech Jesus gives. He's in the temple, and he gives a compassionate address. I don't know if you're like me, but when, when I read scriptures and I come across simple words, sometimes I'm like, what does this very small word mean? Oh. What does oh mean? Well, it, this could be like an exclamation point to the sentence. They didn't have uh, periods and they didn't have exclamation points, so how did they really emphasize something that was important? 
Well, they'd add, oh, or they might repeat a word in order to add emphasis. And, and Jesus starts by saying, oh, to add emphasis, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And this could be either excitement, it could be anger, or it could be grief. Which one is it? This, and in studying, I was reminded of 2 Samuel, and David speaks like this, but in a terrible way. His son Absalom was a, was a terrible son. He, he rebelled against him. Uh, he was treasonous. He committed so many sins. He killed his brothers. And J David should have brought justice to Absalom, but instead he had an unhealthy affection for a Absalom. And so what did he say? Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So we hear the, the cry of a father who has lost his son. Now, this is almost the opposite example of what I want to talk about, but you see the grief that exists. And this is what Jesus experienced. He's experiencing righteous grief over Jerusalem that will not repent. And this word Jerusalem is actually spelled in the Hebrew spelling. It's in Greek, but it's spelled like they would have spelled it in Hebrew. And this is interesting because in the book of Matthew, the word Jerusalem is, is used 12 times. But only in this chapter, at this time, is it spelled with the Hebrew spelling. So it's done on purpose. Now you may know Jesus was not speaking the spelling. He was probably speaking Aramaic, but for all we know, he, I believe he, he probably said Jerusalem with the way a good Hebrew boy would have said it, in, in a, in a, in maybe even using that accent or saying it in a way that would have made him think, oh, he's very familiar with, with the Hebrew people. You know, in, in New Mexico moving here, I've had to learn that there are different ways of saying things and you get, really got to know how to say them or you prove yourself an outsider. But let's be honest, there's some inconsistencies. So we know we say Paseo del Norte. No one says del Norte. But then the high school, I feel like half the time I do hear del Norte high school. Uh, so are we, are we saying it like the Spanish or are we saying it like gringos? Uh, and then there's ch Chile. It's not Chile, so we say it like we're English speakers. We say Chile. But then if you say Chili's, you know, people freak out because we have to follow the Spanish rules for, for plural nouns. Even though you buy a bag of poblano peppers, you buy a bag of green chili. You don't buy a bag of green chilies. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's beautiful because New Mexico isn't Mexico and it's not Colorado, it's somewhere in between. And so our dialect is somewhere in between. But so, so Jesus uses this word, and, 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 and the way he says it makes Matthew think of this Hebrew spelling, of, of something very familiar. It, it's something special to them. You may vacation to Boca Raton and think, oh, that's so mysterious and, and, and sounds so great. And then you hear the translation, and it means rat's mouth. It doesn't sound special in English. Boca Raton, rat's mouth. And so Jesus says things in a way to communicate a message. He's not just saying words. He has a message. And it's to show his familiarity 
with these people he's called on for so long. So he's compassionate. He uh, is, shows his compassion by sending messengers and prophets. You see his patience here. Jesus is the one who keeps sending messengers and prophets to Jerusalem so he could gather them. Uh, he tried this so many times. He says, how, how, where are we? how often would I have gathered your children? He's 33 years old. What does that mean to say how often? He's speaking like he's much older. But this, this points back to his pre-incarnate self where he was longing for Israel to return to him. And that's why he can refer to prophets way back when in verse 35 that we studied on Sunday where he's talking about the prophets that they've rejected all the way back to Abel. He says, how often I would have gathered your children. And then he says, he would protect them like a hen. Why a hen? That's a, a curious phrase, right? Nowhere else in the Old Testament or New Testament is, uh, other than this passage that's echoed in Luke, does Jesus talk about, or God talk about being like a hen? And it's kind of weird because a hen's feminine, right? It's a female chicken. Why didn't he refer to himself as protecting them and gathering them like a lion that roars and devours his enemies? Or maybe if you wanted to use the more feminine sense, you could have said, he could have said, like a she-bear. You know, we use the phrase in English, right? Like a mama bear, a woman who protects her young and is very defensive. Why did he do that? Well, one, hens have wings. And there is an imagery used over and over again of how God protects Israel with his wings. David in Psalm 17 says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. This is a lovely illustration of God's tender care for his people. And here Jesus is claiming to do that same kind of work, that same kind of Yahweh work that Jesus was praying for, or sorry, David was praying for, Jesus says, I do that. I want to do that. I want to do it for so long. That'd be like if, if you went to someone and you were describing some crime you did and they said, it's okay, I'll pardon you. Well, either they're joking or they don't understand what the word means or they have some executive power. When Jesus says that, he is hearkening back to the, to the prayers that Israel calls on the Lord for. It's something that only he can provide. So again, why a hen? All right, we've got wings, but then Luke 13 gives us some clarity. Now Luke 13 is a parallel uh, expression from this passage where Jesus is talking about also hiding the children like a mother hen. And some commentators say, okay, well this this may have happened, you know, if they're skeptics, they'll say this happened, but we don't know when in the timeline of Jesus. But I actually believe they happened before Palm Sunday, where Jesus says, there will be a day where you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he says it after Palm Sunday as he's leaving Jerusalem to say, there's going to be a day when everyone is going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's pointing to a second coming. And in Luke 13, we get some added context where the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're saying, hey, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus calls him 
a fox. Well, that's important because fox don't kill bears. They don't kill lion cubs. What do they go, what do they go into? They go into the hen house, right? I'm not a farmer and I know that. So, so who protects the chicks when the fox is in the hen house? The hen. And so that's what Jesus is pointing to. That's what he's referencing. That's who he's defending against. And he's, he's declaring himself to be like the mother hen. And I was reading about mother hens this week, and they say mother hens have different clucks depending on what they want from their chicks. They may have a cluck to say, hey, come and uh, get some food. And they have a cluck that says there's danger. And all the chicks run to them and hide under their wings. And Jesus is wanting to put that image in your head and say, this is what I want to do for you, if you'll only come. So you, re- you see so much of God's compassion. I want to read to you Jeremiah 9, 1 to 3. You don't have to turn there. This is uh, Jeremiah mourning Israel's sins and their coming judgment, and it's echoed in the language of the Lord and how the Lord speaks. He says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveling lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongues like a bow, Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. This is the Lord's language. It's, it's, it's Jeremiah and the Lord's language, an expression of God's compassion for Israel's sin, his desire to get away from them and to judge them, which we see echoed in this passage. So this is the heart of God, a compassionate God, one who does not desire for Israel to perish. And Paul echoes that when he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. This is what righteousness looks like. It is not one that smiles at the face of the judgment of the wicked, but one that is full of tears for their coming judgment. We don't smugly, we don't smugly speak of the lostness of the world. I think there's just, there's an impulse in, in every uh, church across the the world, this sinful desire to like complain wickedly about the lost world, to not have compassion for them. And we always have to fight that every day. We have to remind ourselves of the gospel, that we're saved by grace, and that we should have compassion on the lost world. Because it is, it is not of us that we're saved. And so we shouldn't expect righteousness, the, the lost world to save themselves by their righteous works. No, we preach to them Christ. So it is a call to compassion. And I have to ask, do you have, your, do you have compassion for your neighbor? How do you express compassion? Have you ever 
considered yourself, your head, a fount of tears for the lost around you? Do your family members grieve you that they're rejecting the Lord? Do you serve unbelievers and share with them the gospel? And I I think it's really easy if you're not around a lot of unbelievers to kind of just be indifferent. And I want to encourage you, meditate on the gospel, preach the gospel to yourself, pray for the lost, and and then get to know lost people. And there's lots of ways you can do that. This Sunday, we're going to visit El Norte, the neighborhood just to the north of the church, and we're going to be inviting people to our Christmas service. We're going to be putting little door hangers on their, their doors. If they answer the door, we'll talk with them. We'll share the gospel with them if they allow. But we're just inviting them to church. It's, just, it's such an easy way to get to know people, to see that, like, that you inviting someone to church or you just being a Christian is you're not going to be rejected in the way that you think you are. Some people will reject you. Some people will be rude, but that is a badge of honor because Jesus Christ was rejected. Jesus Christ knew what it was like to be insulted for righteousness sake. And we can now share with him in that. But again, that happens very rarely. And we should get to know our neighbor. We should engage them. So I want to deal with two complications from this passage uh, with... um, you know, Jesus wanting to gather his brood under his wings. Some people have said, well, should we really call God like masculine pronouns if he uses these feminine attributes? Well, I, again, we've already talked about the fact that he's calling himself a hen because Herod was a fox. It only fits. But I think there is an impulse that we can have where we want to make the gendered some extreme versions of themselves. And I, and I think I worry that there are women among us that feel like they have to be some extreme version of a woman in order to be feminine, that they have to be the ultimate nurturing, you know, homemaker that's, you know, in a magazine or something in order to be fully woman. And, and that is not the case. And I worry that dads are walking around thinking they have to be these only stoic, only risk-taking, only uh, protecting their kids, that they would never cuddle with their kids, they'll just cuddle with their gun, you know, because that's this masculine man, right? And, and, And we know that would be a terrible father. And that is not what a real man looks like. That is not what Jesus looked like. That is not what David looks like in the Psalms, who is weeping over his sins. We can't be these caricatures, and God is not like that either. The God has nurturing aspects to him, and praise the Lord for that. I don't want just a warrior God. I want a God that's a physician too, and that will pick me up when I inevitably fall down. You know, Paul said uh, in 1 Thessalonians, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So Paul's not afraid to use that language to talk about himself. And then Herman Bavink, who was born in 1854, so he's no modern theologian in the way we would tend to use the word modern. He said, no man is complete without some feminine qualities. No woman is complete without some masculine qualities. So if I can just use a a moment just to tell you ladies, be, be at peace with just 
being true to what God calls you to be and don't let the world tell you what a woman is supposed to be, what a woman is supposed to dress like. Just keep looking to scripture and seeing what God calls a, a feminine woman, okay? All right, so then the second issue is God's sovereignty. So people will look at this passage and they'll see Jesus weeping over the lostness of Israel and saying that he wants to gather them, but they won't. So what's the problem? He wants to gather them. Well, if you're a sovereign God, meaning you can do anything you want, then why can't you gather them? Are you not all powerful? That would be the question, right? So then people typically deal with this in two ways. There has to be some overriding will or something that overrides that desire, right? And so some will say, well, free will is the trump card. He, would, he wants to, but free will always wins. And, and at Desert Springs, we would not teach that. We believe that it is actually God's sovereign will that trumps all things. His will that would receive him all the glory that he deserves. And that overrides this legitimate desire of his to gather the unrepentant. I want, maybe the, the easiest example to show you from Scripture is in Acts 2.23, where it says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, was executing Jesus a sin? Well, I mean, God planned it. God willed it. It was, it was a part of his plan from the beginning. It was his desire. But then, does that mean people who carried it through were, were sinning? Well, absolutely they were sinning. And yet, it was God's plan. Uh, you know, the most helpful book for, for me on this issue that I encourage you to read if you do have questions is John Piper's The Pleasures of God. And in it, he says... The greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory and wrath and mercy and the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving all credit to God for his salvation. So when we come to Christ, is it because our will overrode? No, no. It's God's sovereign plan. It's mysterious. And we're left just thanking him alone for it. All right, so we see God as a compassionate God. And then secondly, we have an unwilling people. We have a compassionate God and an unwilling people. First, he addresses Jerusalem as the city that kills the prophets. We had uh, transitioned from earlier in the chapter where we were talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, and now Jesus is talking directly about the city itself that represents the people of God. And what do they do? They stone the prophets. That's their identity now. That's what they do. If we make New Mexico, we're the land of Minana, we're the land of enchantment, we're the land of green chili, what does Jesus say? This is the city that kills the prophets. And, and what's most sad is they don't just kill them, they stone them. And stoning is a religious ceremony. As much as you would say, how do you 
You know, what's your religious ceremony? We gather together, we pray, we sing songs, we hear God's word preached, we respond in song, we fellowship together, we take the Lord's Supper. One of their, the aspects of the Hebrew religion was stoning. And they would do that religiously to the prophets. What a blasphemy. They were supposed to, to stone blasphemers, but somehow this came to stoning the prophets, the people that would declare the word of God. It's a mockery. And as it says, that kills, not have killed, has have killed, will kill, has killed. Because that's what they, or sorry, that kills. Because they, they've done it in the past, they're going to do it now, and they're going to do it in the future. John the Baptist was executed for, for preaching the truth. Jesus Christ is about to be executed. He knows it. And then later on, Stephen is going to be stoned. And how does he, how did, this, this, this person that's supposed to be a blasphemer, what is his last prayer? Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Does that sound like a blasphemer, someone that should be stoned? No. They've rejected the way of God. They don't want to hear it. They plug their ears. And then they raise unwilling children. Now, the children of Israel in view here, I think could be all of Israel, or sorry, the children of Jerusalem could be all of Israel, but it could also be the literal children because we see this going on for generations, generation after generation of prophet killers. And Jerusalem is, is uh, the mother of this godless religion, and they represent the religion, kind of like how people will say Washington to refer to Washington, D.C., to refer to our elective leaders, to maybe even refer to you and I. We can use Washington as that place header. Jerusalem, the head of this religion. But then they have these literal children, this intergenerational sin. So it's not just the parents that are rejecting God, but they're raising children, sons and daughters to reject God. It's a whole community that does not fear the Lord. I want to encourage you parents, your children are watching you. They see what you worship, like what's most important to you. Maybe you could have to think about it for a little bit. Your kids could probably have a good guess real quick. And they'll see if, you, if your Christianity is just something that you put on for, for our worship services or if it's something that you, that's changed your life. And they will be adults that will grow to reflect that. Or maybe reject that. Uh, you know, we know that your, your kids' accents, they actually become their friends' accents. So if you're like a first-generation American, your kids will sound like, you know, the rest of the, their friends, right? But, but their religious beliefs, so often, from my personal experience, it's either a, a, some form of accepting what their parents believed or a rejection, but it always starts there. That's the foundation. What did the parents believe and life is built out from that point? an acceptance or a rejection. Pray for them. Lead them spiritually. If you sin against them, confess it and ask for forgiveness. You know, when we elders pray for you guys, you know, if you don't mention it, we're just going to pray for your kids if you've got kids because we want all your kids. My greatest desire is for my kids to know the Lord, and that's my, for you too if you're a parent. And then they won't gather. Here we have a contrast. In the ESV, it says, I would have gathered. 
but this is a positive form of the same word which, uh, of their unwillingness to gather. God is willing to gather them under his protection, but they are not willing. God is trying to, has been trying to dwell with his people since the Exodus, but they don't want him to. After the golden calf in the Exodus, God moved out from the camp because he couldn't be around their sin. Then he, he dwells with them in the ark. And then what happens? In Samuel 4, Hophni and Phinehas, these terrible sons, sin and the ark gets taken to the Philistines. God just leaves Israel for a bit. And then in, in the prophets, we see Ezekiel proclaiming that God is going to depart and is going to lead to their destruction. God gives them so many chances again and again and again, and it keeps intensifying, and each time they reject him, and now we have God himself in their presence, and they, they don't want a piece of it, and they want to kill him. They don't want to gather under his wings. And friends, it is, everybody wants to be the rooster, Everybody wants to strut about and crow and fight other roosters and fight things. But spiritually, it's really hard to admit you're just a chick and that you have to hide under God's wings. But that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to hide under the wings of the Lord to say, I can't protect myself. I can't stand on my own two feet. I am only safe under the wings of of my forever loving God. All right, lastly, thirdly, desolation and exaltation. We've talked about God's compassion. We've talked about uh, the, how Israel has been unwilling to hide under his wings, and now desolation and exaltation. So there's desolation now and to, co to, to come. Let me talk about the now first. Jesus announces his judgment with the word see. Anytime a prophet says see, here comes some, a, a big change. Uh, it's almost like when the angels come, behold, unto you a child is born. See, and then your house is left to you desolate. This prophecy is announced, and it's of desolation. And this desolation has this similar idea to the word wilderness. It's the adjective to the word wilderness. If you, if you drive out in eastern New Mexico, you know what like how barren things can get. Think of spiritual wasteland. That's what it's like when Jesus departs because he is the presence of God. When he leaves, the presence of God is leaving. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that is bad spiritually and that's gonna be bad physically. And so he leaves, he, and before he leaves, he says, your house is left desolate to you. And he doesn't say my house. He doesn't say the Lord's house. He says your house. He's signing over the deed. It's going to be destroyed anyway. And he's saying, I don't want a part of it. You can have it as he walks out. And I don't want you to miss how many uh, claims of divinity Jesus has throughout this passage. He says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that they're going to say that about him again. Well, let me just read to you Psalm 118, a couple verses of it. This is the same passage where we see uh, this, this 
this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and it says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. This is all pointing to the Lord that is Jesus, manifested God. Uh, Matthew Henry says about this particular passage, Christ's departure makes the best furnished, best replenished place a wilderness. Though it be the very temple of God, for what comfort can there be where Christ is not? And though there may be a crowd of other contentments, yet if Christ's spiritual, special presence can be withdrawn, that soul, that place has become a wilderness and a darkness as of darkness itself. And that is why Rutherford could say, if Christ's love is not in heaven, then I want to go where it is because heaven would not be heaven if Christ's love were not there. You can guarantee Jerusalem is not the promised land, the special land, if Christ is not there. Heaven is not heaven without Christ's love. I want to be where Christ's love is. And Israel wants the temple. They want the house of God without God. God's presence, Jesus Christ. And we can have a religion without Jesus. We can have Christianity without Christ. It's so easy to see, I mean, churches, we, we do a lot of great, you know, beautiful things, and it's easy to see those things and get excited about those things. But we want you to be excited about Christ. And then you can be excited about other things that bring glory to Christ. But when you sing, are you singing unto Christ? When you sing the words, are you thinking about your voice? Or are you thinking about the God you're worshiping? I want to call you to think about what you're, you're singing about. To come, to come to our gatherings and be prepared to encounter God and his word and to change. To dwell with him, not just here, but throughout your week. So Jesus is leaving. He leaves them a desolation. And there, this is a, a desolation to come. Because in 40 short years, there's going to be a literal destruction of the temple. And not one stone will be left on top of another. Jesus, Jesus told them about this. So there's the desolation and then there's the exaltation. He says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem would not accept Jesus as their king. They wouldn't sit under his instruction. And they would not confess that Jesus is the Lord. So... When, when the disciples on Palm Sunday were, were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the, the religious leaders were not a part of that. 
but someday they will be. Whether, whether with joy or whether in sadness, knowing that they're about to be judged. They're going to either welcome Jesus as their Savior or their judge. Philippians says, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believers, this is good news. I know that there are times when, when life can be so difficult and there's suffering and, and you're wanting some relief. There is going to be ultimate relief one day for all those who trust in Christ. That he is going to come and he's going to take, wipe away every tear and he's going to make all things right. But if you do not trust in Christ, this will be a very sad day for you. And I worry that there are people here that Christ has cried over. I'm sure he had unbelieving friends that he knew would never believe in him and he wept over them. And he wept over the lost world. And I worry that he's wept over you that you will be judged, that you'll be forever separated from him because the worst thing for us that could happen is for us to reject God and then God give us what we want to be forever separated from him. And I worry that happens, that's going to happen to some here. And so how do you know that that will not happen to you? How do you ensure it? Well, Jesus said, in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the hope. It's not being better. I'm not, it's not coming to church more. It's faith. It's trusting that he alone can save you. Run under his wings. You will be safe. No one can ever snatch you from his hands. You will be forever protected. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who is tender. You are not just some macho caricature of masculinity but you are compassionate. You weep over the lost. You are so gracious. You give us so many chances to, to repent. Lord, we don't know how many chances each one of us will have, how many, how many opportunities to come and hear the gospel preached. I pray for those who are here who haven't trusted in you, no matter their age, no matter their situation. I pray that they would leave all the concerns of this world behind and run swiftly to hide under your wings. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.